All right. Let me just quickly explain uh, what was going on right here. Uh, sometimes when the, when the Holy Spirit shows up, people respond um, in a way that's unique to them. And at our church, we want to be okay, we want to be okay with that, okay? We don't want to get scared of it or whatever. And we don't really know what's going on in people's lives. Uh, when it gets to the point where it's a little distracting for their benefit, so that they don't get embarrassed, we just try to quietly slide them off. So instead of shutting it down or ignoring it, they're dealing with it for real in there. Uh, but at the same time, we're not going to, uh, I guess, scrap what Jesus has been speaking to us all week about either. So does that make sense? So we're trying to just handle both things fairly, protect, it, protect everybody's dignity, and, and handle that. Is that cool? All right. Uh, thank you. All right. All right. Well, let me jump into this sermon. We're, we're finishing up Nehemiah today. We're in chapter 13. That's it. I mean, today's the last day in Nehemiah. I, you know, not, I'm not saying don't ever go read it again, but this is the, uh, this is the end of the sermon series about it. Uh, I have personally enjoyed it. I feel like I personally have grown in my understanding of the book of Nehemiah. Uh, I think we took about five months in it, a good, nice, not too long so that we got bored, but not too fast so that we skimmed through it. Uh, so we're in Nehemiah 13, that's it today. Uh, we're going to take the next couple weeks and just kind of take a week at a time. Luis um, is, is preaching at both campuses next week, then the fourth is the anniversary. Uh, then I believe Luis is preaching at both campuses again on the 11th. So we're just going to take it for a little bit. We'll take it week by week. We're going to start another series at the end of October uh, on our vision and our values. But uh, that's the foreseeable future for you. All right. I love campfires. Does anyone else like campfires? Okay. A couple of, oh, well, all right. More of you than I thought. Okay. I like campfires. Uh, I live in Mayfair on Wellington Street. I don't know if I should have told you the street. Um, but I live in Mayfair. I, you know, my yard is not much bigger than both of these rugs. I don't even own a lawnmower. I have a weed whacker. You know, about, about every 10 days I go out and just weed whack. It literally only takes me like four minutes to do the whole yard with a weed whacker. But right in the middle of it, like I pretend that I live in the forest, I have a stack of wood that I've taken from branches. You know how the branches fall off the trees here? All right, well, I take them off of people's cars because they're always falling on people's cars. I saw them up and I have a stack of wood and I have a little campfire ring that I made out of stone. And whenever I can, I think I might even do it tonight, I have a little campfire, burn the wood, you know, organic, locally sourced wood for all you hipsters out there. I'm looking in this general direction here, Karen students. Um, sorry, sorry. Uh, we, you know, I love campfires. My son loves them. Um, but, you know, the nature of a campfire is, is to go out. If you leave it unattended, what happens? A campfire will go out, right? That's a little different than a forest fire. The nature of a forest fire is to destroy everything. But the nature of a campfire is to go out. If you don't keep stoking it, if you don't maintain it, it will go out over time, right? I hope I'm not giving you any new information here. I mean, that's kind of how I, how I wrap mine up. Uh, about 30 minutes before I want to be done, I stop putting wood on it, and then eventually I have to douse it with water. 
But if you don't stoke a fire, it goes out. If you have a fireplace in your house or anything like that, if you don't continue feeding it, it'll go out. The nature of a fire is to go out. Now, uh, similarly, if you've, who's ever flown on a plane? A couple of you? All right. All right, so planes have to like, right, they take off. It takes a ton of energy, a ton of force to get a plane off the ground, right? And then they get to their cruising altitude and then they, they just kind of cruise for the most part until they're ready to land. But you know, it's the nature of a plane is to crash, right? <laughs> well, what happens to a plane if you turn the engines off, right? I mean... There's this, uh, there's this law called gravity, right? Gravity. That's why I can't play basketball anymore. Uh, I'm kind of a Larry Bird at this point in my life. Just stay out near the three-point line. Uh, gravity acts on a force, on an object, to pull it back down to earth, right? I mean, there is a law of gravity that will crash a plane if its engines ever turn off. There's also the law of aerodynamics, which allows planes to fly if they have enough force propelling them through the air. Everyone got this? I'm not, I'm not trying to do a physics class, but this is basic stuff, right? If there's enough force acting on a plane, it'll stay in the air. But you know, what happens if, the turn, if it turns the engines off, what will happen immediately? It'll start to descend, right? That is a picture of your spiritual life. You will go through times where there's a lot of force propelling you upward, and then you'll get to a point where you'll think, I'm good now, I can, I can cruise, I can chill out. And I'm telling you that there is another law that is going to immediately start pulling you down the minute you take your foot off the gas. In the, spirit, in the Bible, it's called the law of sin, not the law of gravity, but the law of sin or your flesh. Uh, but then there's the law of the spirit that propels you. There is never a point in your spiritual life where you can say, I'm good now, I'm just going to coast. Coasting will always take you downward, okay? So just like a plane that, that kicks off the engines, it doesn't keep going, right, because it's hit a certain level. The minute the engines kick off, it begins to decline. The same with a fire. The minute you stop stoking it, it begins to die, right? You're good on this. So, this is a theme that is all throughout Scripture. Um, I'm just going to share one, one story, one guy, Solomon in the Old Testament. You guys know Solomon? David's son. That, right, the wisest man in the Bible. David's son. Uh, you know, Solomon was the richest man on the earth at the time. Solomon actually had to build, this might confuse you, Solomon built David's temple. David didn't build David's temple. David got the blueprint for it, but God said, you can't build it because you've killed too many people. Your son Solomon's going to have to build it. So David stockpiled resources for his son, and Solomon ended up building that temple. Solomon was the wisest man in Scripture. He wrote Proverbs. He wrote Ecclesiastes. He was just an example, but at the end of Solomon's life, he fell away from the Lord. Things did not finish well with Solomon, and here's why... In Solomon's case, it happened because he had a thousand. Yeah, two. Oh, uh oh, there's a, something about to go down in the front row. He had a thousand wives and concubines. Or as Curvin said, too many women. 
The problem was not the problem was not actually the women, although that makes me question his wisdom right there. The thousand of them. The que- the problem was that they were they were all following other gods, and so by allowing them in his life, he began to seek their gods instead of his god. And so Solomon started off great, but did not maintain or didn't finish it. Yeah, he he did not sustain the revival that David started. And so this is kind of what the the last chapter in Nehemiah is a fascinating warning and encouragement to us. Now, before we get to Nehemiah 13, we need some background. You might remember just a few weeks ago, it was probably a month ago, we were in Nehemiah 10. We were talking about this covenant that the people signed. Do you guys remember this? There was a covenant. And we had the Levites, the priests, and the leaders of the people sign the covenant. And the covenant had three specific promises in it. Do you remember this? Okay, well, maybe you don't, but we're going to refresh your memory. So I'm going to ask Miss Ruth to come up. Uh, This is from Nehemiah chapter 10, verses 30 through 33. It's going to list three specific commitments. See if you can pick them out. If you want, I'll I'll, uh, unfold them. I'll explain them in a minute. Miss Ruth, do you want me to hold this mic? Okay. It says, we promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the people around us or take their daughters from our sons. When our neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or any other holy day. Every seventh year, we will forego working the land and will cancel all debts. We assume the responsibility for carrying out the commands to give a third of a shekel each year for the services of our house, of our God. For the bread set out on the table for the regular grain offerings and burnt offerings for the offerings on the Sabbath, new moon festivals, and appointed feasts for the holy offerings, for sin offerings to make anointed for Israel, and for all duties of the house of our God. All right, thank you, Miss Ruth. All right, so in that passage, they make three commitments. Okay, if you can throw this, uh, oh, it's up there, great. Uh, this, these are the obligations of the covenant they made in chapter 10. In verse 30, it says they will not intermarry with pagan nations. Okay. Number two, in verse 31, it says they will not buy or sell on the Sabbath. In verses 32 and 33, it says they are going to support the house of God through their offerings. Now, I just want to, I feel like I have to explain this just because uh, if I don't, I don't want people to go away with the wrong idea. The, the concept of intermarriage is going to come up several times during this sermon. I want you to understand that this passage and what I'm going to say today is not against interracial marriage, okay? It is against interfaith marriage, all right? It is the idea of, we call it being unequally yoked, all right? So I know people make a case and they're wrong when they do it that, Oh, when it says that Israel wasn't supposed to marry outside of Israel, that's a case against interracial marriage. That is not the point of that passage. The point of that passage is not to marry someone who believes differently than you believe. You got that? Now, back then it was a little more confusing because Israel was generally the only people that believed in the God of the Bible. So, please don't go home misunderstanding how we're interpreting this. And if you have questions, I'd rather you ask them before you go home and let your mind run with it, okay? We good with that? 
All right, thank you. So, these are the, the commitments that they make in chapter 10. Not to intermarry with pagan nations, not to buy or sell on the Sabbath, and to support the house of God. By chapter 13, they've broken all of those. In fact, exactly those three. Those are the three commitments that they make that they broke. Now let me explain, I'm going to explain chapter 13 before we read it. We close chapter 12, things are going pretty well. Chapter 13, we pick up, Nehemiah has actually left. He, Nehemiah spent 12 years in Jerusalem rebuilding the wall, reestablishing the culture, uh, reinstituting the feasts and the, and the study of God's word, getting the priests and the Levites, the spiritual life back in order. He spent 12 years doing that. And then he left for a year. And during that year, everything fell apart. And he came back after the year and he's like, what is going on? And it is, I would love to see someone make a movie about Nehemiah's return because he goes berserk. We're going to get to a part where he starts hitting people and pulling their hair and their beards. And he, he throws a dude's stuff out of the room, like, like it, when you're breaking up with your person that you break up with and... You throw all their stuff out on the lawn. He does that to someone. He does not like say, let's have a meeting. He just goes through and he, he cleans house. Now, so uh, he spends 12 years establishing this culture. He leaves for a year. When he returns, he finds, dang, we're, we, that did not take long for us to go back to the same old junk that we were in. When he returned, Scott, can you go to the last slide? I did this out of order, kind of. But when he returned, he found four things. Again, he'd only been gone for a year, about a year. He comes back. He finds the enemy living in the temple. Do you guys remember the enemy? Uh, in the early chapters of Nehemiah, there was a guy named Tobiah, yeah. Sanballat. Yeah. yeah. Tobiah is living in the temple now. He was his enemy. And when he left, the people of Jerusalem let the enemy right, and now he's living in the temple. Not living in the city, living in the temple. He finds that tithing had been forsaken, that no one's giving anymore. He finds that the Sabbath is being violated, and he finds, I put spiritual compromise, but he finds that they are now intermarrying with the nations outside of Israel, which is, I'm going to, get to, I'm going to call that spiritual compromise, we'll get there in a little bit. So these are the four things that he finds when he discovers. Numbers 2, 3, and 4, they had made specific commitments not to do anymore. And the whole letting the enemy live in the, in the, in the temple might actually be the root cause for the other three. All right, Scott, can you back it up to the first uh, portion of Scripture? Thank you. So this is Nehemiah writing. He says, during all this time, when everything has fallen apart, during all this time, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had gone to the king. After some time, however, I asked leave from the king, and I came to Jerusalem and learned about the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah. Tobiah is the enemy, all right? Tobiah is the bad guy here. By preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God, it was very displeasing to me, so I threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. 
Then I gave an order that they cleanse the rooms, and I returned there the utensils of the house of God with the grain offerings and the frankincense. So the first thing, he comes back and he finds, what is Tobiah doing living in the temple? I, fought, I, I contended against this guy the whole time we were building the, 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 the wall. Don't you remember, this guy wanted to stop us from building the wall, and now you let him live in the city, in the temple. I mean, this is, for us, in, in the New Covenant, this is, a, this is a teaching on spiritual warfare. They've given access to the enemy, and not just access, but they pretty much let them live in the church. Right? I mean, it's not, I mean, Warren Wearsby says it this way, Satan doesn't just attack the church, Satan's trying to join the church. He's trying to do it from the inside out. And now, they have given Tobiah, the, the enemy of Nehemiah, the guy Nehemiah fought against, they, now they've let him live in the city. They moved him right in, and he lives in the temple. You guys got that? Yes. Now this is connected to the next thing. Go to the next slide. Oh, great. Scott with the anticipation. <laughs> Nehemiah, I also discovered that the portions of the Levites had not been given them. So that the Levites and the singers who performed the service had gone away, each to his own field. So I reprimanded the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? Then I gathered them together and restored them to their posts. All Judah then brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. In charge of the storehouses, I appointed Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites. And in addition to them was Hanan the son of Zechor, the son of Madaniah, for they were considered reliable. And it was their task to distribute to their kinsmen. Remember me for this, O my God, and do not blot out my loyal deeds, which I have performed for the house of my God and its services. All right. So, there was a commitment by the people to support the house of God, so that you could have Levites and priests ministering to God and ministering to the people. Without the financial support and the material support, this had to stop. All right, so there's a couple things we need to unpack here. Remember Tobiah was living in the temple, right? I don't know if you caught which room he was living in. There's a room in the temple set aside for the, the frankincense, the oil, the wine. There's a room set aside to hold the tithes and the offerings. That room was empty because they stopped giving. So now the enemy has moved in to where the tithes and offerings should have been stored because it was empty. Their lack of giving literally made a room for the enemy. Do I need to back up, bring Angela up here again and explain that we, made a, we have a $13,000 big room right now, big gap? I don't, want to over, I don't want to overstate this, but I also don't want to ignore it. The fact that they weren't giving made access for the enemy to move in, and all the Levites and the priests had to leave, because they had to go work now. So there was no one manning the temple, there was no one ministering to the presence of the Lord, because they weren't giving. It's really quiet in here. That's okay. Okay. <laughs> Good. <laughs> yeah. 
Warren Wearsby, in his commentary on Nehemiah, which I know some of you are reading on Wednesday nights, he says, when God's people start to decline spiritually, one of the first places that it shows up is in their giving. And I just, I want to kind of, we need to have a family meeting. There is something missing from the spiritual atmosphere here that we are not translating our passion for God to supporting the work of God. There's, I don't know what it is that's missing, but something's missing. And I think, you know, I, 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 we got to stop making excuses. We can't say, oh, well, it's a, it's a tough neighborhood. All right. Well, last year we gave more money than we did this year. So if we could do it in 2014, I don't know why we can't do it now. This is not just math. This is, this is a spiritual issue. All right? So... There's, this, this is a symptom of a spiritual problem. I can't say that I totally understand it at this point, but I'm ready to dig in and figure it out. We good? All right, this is a spiritual problem. Um, the, 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 the lack of the offerings literally made a room for the enemy to move in. Do you guys want to leave room for the enemy? Okay, me neither. And if you read in Malachi, it says that the destroyer, uh, <laughs> when you don't, when you don't give faithfully, I'll just leave it at that. The destroyer uh, or the devourer will come. Um, I don't want the devourer around. All right. I'll just move past that. Now, the next thing, if you move uh, to the next slide, it says, Then I reprimanded the nobles of Judah, and I said to them, What is this evil thing you're doing by profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers do the same so that our God brought on us and on this city all this trouble, yet you're adding to the wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath? This is how they were profaning the Sabbath, and we're going to have to kind of translate this for us today. They made a commitment that they were not going to buy or sell stuff on the Sabbath, which for them would have been Friday night to Saturday sundown. So sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday, they were just not going to buy or sell anything. They had made that commitment. They were just... They're essentially just acting like everybody else. They weren't acting any differently, even though they are the unique people of God. And uh, they made that commitment. And then the other people, the other nations, the pagan nations started coming and selling. And uh, they picked right back where they left off, started buying and selling with the pagan nations on the Sabbath. Now, the issue wasn't that they bought and sold from pagan nations. They were allowed to do that six days a week. There's supposed to just be one day where you don't do that. And so they started to profane the Sabbath. They were working on the Sabbath. And, uh, and, well, I mean, it says right there, they're profaning the Sabbath, which is something they had committed just three chapters earlier not to do. Now, when I, uh, when I preached on chapter 10 at Tyson Ave, one person raised their hand in the middle of the sermon and said, are you saying we're not allowed to buy anything on Sunday? All right, that's not what I'm saying. I want to make sure that you understand I'm not... I'm not saying that you can't go out on Sunday and spend money. Uh, we're not, that's not what we're adopting. That's not what I'm asking you to do. But I am asking that you honor the concept of a Sabbath in your life. That there needs to be a 24-hour period in your life. There needs to be a day that's different from all the other days. All right. Now, how you do that is between you and God. But there, I think there needs to be a day. So for me, it's Monday. I do not work on Monday. I don't answer my phone on Monday. Monday is 
for me and Jesus and my family. Okay, now I have the ability to do that because I'm a pastor and we only work one day a week anyway, so as a joke, I work hard at least two to three days a week. Uh, for me, it's Monday. Now, I know that for most people, Monday through Friday, Friday are not really options. Okay, and actually, I will, I will say, though, if you work Monday through Friday, the Friday night to Saturday night thing is still an option, depending on how, you, how full your schedule is. I mean, most people that work 9 to 5 Monday through Friday jobs could still actually honor the biblical Sabbath if they wanted to, the Friday night to Saturday night. But again, whether that's your 24-hour period or not, that's between you and Jesus, and I'm not saying it needs to be. Uh, I am going to say you need to find a time 24 hours is all. It's really not, it shouldn't be impossible. Uh, that is set aside for rest and, and recharging in the presence of God. I would even say the Sabbath is not the same thing as a day off. A day off, I might still run errands. I might still answer the phone if someone calls. I might fix something in the house. But on a Sabbath, I'm not doing those things. I'm, I'm dedicating the day to the Lord and to my family and to being refreshed. You got that? So... Now, again, I know that for many of you, scheduling that is difficult. So this is what we're going to do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do our best to make this possible. Because I've, I've heard from many of you, and, and, I, and you're right, I'm not, I'm not arguing. You work Monday through Friday. Then every Saturday there's a church event that we want you to come volunteer at and serve at. And then on Sunday, there's, there's church, and we need you to come to church and work at church, and then you go back to work on Monday while I'm taking the day off. So this is a commitment that I'm going to make to you. We, in 2016, are going to dial back the amount of Saturdays that we have church-wide events. We're, if we're going to ask you to take a Sabbath, we need to then make that available to you by not having church-wide events every single Saturday. Yeah, does that make sense? Now, I'm not saying we're never going to have events on Saturday. We're still going to have, uh, you know, we have some leadership training stuff we do on Saturday. We do our uh, certain events on Saturday, but they will not, they will be like little groups instead of the whole church. I'm not saying we're never going to do it, but you're going to notice a marked difference in 2016. More free Saturdays. Loretta, you have a question. Well, sure. Uh, yeah, I'm not, well, yeah, yeah, I'm not worried about the sunset thing personally. I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to wiggle into the, the biblical Sabbath, the, the Friday night to Saturday thing. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to hold myself to that or hold you to that. But what I am going to say is if we're telling you you need to take a day off, then we need to let you take a day off. <laughs> you know what, does that make sense? Uh, because what we find is, I mean, I'm just being honest, what we find is, we have a hard time getting people out on Saturdays, and if they come on Saturdays, they're exhausted on Sundays. I mean, sometimes, sometimes we truly are working people seven days a week because we really, we want, as a church, we need people to work jobs, right? We want people to be active working. And then we, we find a way to fill their Saturday up and then fill their Sunday up, and then they go back to work on Monday tired. I would rather, let's take some Saturdays off and so that when everyone gets here on Sunday, they're, they're refreshed and, and energized, right? And uh, 
One of the reasons Sabbath worked for them, the Hebrew people, is because they all had the same day off. I mean, we don't have that in America really anymore. We used to have Sundays, you couldn't, restaurants were closed, stores were closed, movie theaters, malls were closed on Sunday. Now the only thing that's closed is Chick-fil-A. And uh, the Cleveland Browns don't work on Sundays, generally. I say that as a Browns fan. Are you a Browns fan? No. Oh, okay. Well, all right. I am. But, uh, yeah, it's been a rough 15 years. So, but, you know, the Sabbath worked for Israel because they all had the same day. So we're going to try to honor the Sabbath as a church by making Saturdays just a little, just chilling a little more on Saturdays. I'm not saying we're never going to do anything, but I think you're going to notice there'll be less. And what we're going to try to do instead is encourage people to do these discipleship groups midweek, you know, and, and, and do that. Does that make sense? You're going to notice a difference to the appro- our approach on, on, on Saturdays uh, in 2016. Any other questions on that? Go ahead, Loretta. <laughs> Sounds like you want something going on on Saturdays. Well, uh, you know, I don't want to get legalistic about it, so I'd say that's something you need to take up with Jesus. But the biblical concept of Sabbath is a 24-hour period, which, you know, for them was a portion of Friday and a portion of Saturday. You know, so theoretically, they could have worked on Friday during the day, gone home Saturday night, take most of Saturday off, and worked on Saturday night after dark. Now, they didn't because they didn't have electricity. But we could. I'm not suggesting you need to do that, but I'm just saying 24, it's, it, it's a 24-hour thing, not a full calendar day. Okay, we good? Any other questions? No? Okay. Uh, let me move on here past this to the, uh, the, the fourth thing that Nehemiah walked in on or noticed, and that is spiritual compromise manifested in this, uh, these interfaith marriages here. In those days, I also saw that the Jews had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. As, as for their children, half spoke in the language of Ashdod. None of them were able to speak the language of Judah, but the language of his own, pe- uh, but the language of his own people. So I contended with them and cursed them, struck some of them, and pulled out their hair. This dude makes me look like a cupcake. He made them swear by God, you shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor take of their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Now, uh, there's a couple things going on here. He's telling them, don't give your, don't give, don't take their daughters for your sons. And he points out right in there, some of them can't even speak our language anymore. Now, that is a real concern for first-generation immigrants that come into the United States, and then they have their kids in the United States, and their kids grow up speaking English. That comes up all the time. We want our kids to know our language, right? This is what they're going through. We want our kids to know our language. And in that culture, back then in Nehemiah's day, The dad would probably be working and out a lot. He might be on trips. He might be in the military and gone for months or years at a time. So the mom was primarily raising the kids. So if the mom was from a pagan nation, she's passing on her language, her beliefs, her traditions, her religion. Do you get that? Like it was all coming through the mom, 
which is why their primary concern is don't, don't take their daughters for our sons. They're mixing the belief systems. This is not about mixing races. This is about mixing the belief systems. All right? So he says, stop doing it. And he's pretty serious about it because we're, we're only a generation in now and they're already losing the language and the culture of, of the Jewish people. Now, uh, he gets pretty hardcore when he starts cursing them. Now, I don't know if that means he's calling down curses or saying curse words. Either one sounds intense. He's hitting them. He's pulling their hair. He cares. Right? I mean, why, why is he reacting this strongly? He's reacting because he cares. It's not because he's a jerk, although he could have been a jerk also, but I think he's reacting that way because he, he takes this seriously. So those are the four things that Nehemiah walks in on. He walks in on the enemy living in the temple, after it returns from this year-long absence, the enemy living in the temple, the, the tithes have been totally forsaken, the Sabbath was violated, there's spiritual compromise all over the place. And in a moment, we're going to take communion, and, uh, and the worship team's going to come up, but they did not sustain the fire. You know, Nehemiah spent 12 years building this fire, and then they did not sustain it. They, they had a good thing going, and, and they kind of let it die down. Like they hit, they hit uh, autopilot on the plane, and like I said, gravity, well, autopilot, autopilot's actually fine. They turned the engines off, and the plane just started to nosedive. They, they were taking a spiritual nosedive within a year. I mean, I, I, can't, I just can't get over how quickly it happened. They had 12 good years under Nehemiah, uh, and then things are just going the wrong direction. So, Here's a couple things that we can do to make sure we don't do that. Number one, don't give the enemy any room. I mean, don't, don't give Satan an opportunity. Don't, give him a li- don't, don't just give him a little tiny bit, because he'll take a little more the next week and a little more the next week. All these stories in the Old Testament about Israel going to battle and just slaughtering people, for us now, those are all uh, spiritual warfare illustrations because we're not actually supposed to go and actually physically slaughter people, but it's that level of sincerity and seriousness that we are to approach our, en- our real enemy, because we don't wage war against flesh and blood, but it's that level of, of seriousness that we're to go into spiritual warfare, right? We don't leave anything, any, any stone unturned. You guys remember Saul? Saul, one of Saul's assignments was to kill all of the Amalekites, does anyone remember this story? Uh, Samuel told Saul, go kill all the Amalekites. And Saul went in, and he killed most of the Amalekites, and, but he, he kept some of their uh, sheep and, and cows. And Samuel comes, what is this I hear? I hear cows and sheep. And Saul says, well, I thought, you know, rather than kill everyone and everything, let me, let me keep some of them and offer them to God. That's where Samuel says it's better to obey than to offer a sacrifice. You should have just listened and did it. So Saul was supposed to kill all the Amalekites. He killed most of the Amalekites. He didn't kill all of them. Do you know who killed Saul? An Amalekite. Wasn't even supposed to be alive. Saul did not finish off the enemy, so the enemy finished him off. 
And when we leave just a little bit of room for the enemy, you know, just, ah, oh, well, I, did, I got most of this sin dealt with. I got most of this sin confessed. I, I'm, I'm, I'm like 90% obedient. That 10% is going to come back. Now, I'm not saying you're going to be perfect. None of you are. But to be at least committed to dealing with it. So don't give the enemy opportunity. Don't give the enemy any room. Secondly, submit your resources to God. Like the, that tithing issue, that's finances. And the Sabbath thing is a time. That's about time. To me, those are the only two resources you really have. You got money and you got time. That's pretty much it. What do they say? Time is money, right? I mean, most of us, if you work an hourly rate, if you work, make an hour, like such and such an hour, they're equating your time to money and your money to time, Right? Time and money are the two primary resources that any one of us have. Those both need to be dedicated to God. Does that make sense? You got that? So, so first, don't give the enemy an opportunity. Number, number two, submit your real resources to God. Uh, I say submit your real resources to God. Don't, don't over-spiritualize stuff. Um, don't say, I don't really have time to serve. I'll pray. Serve and pray. All right. Last thing. Do not compromise with sin. All right. The biggest issue with them intermarrying was the compromise. It was a spiritual compromise. They're compromising the spiritual life of, of Israel. And uh, it was not going well. So Nehemiah comes in in chapter 13. He sees all this. And he kind of has to do a quick version of what he did in the previous 12 chapters. And he just kind of wrecks shop, cleans things up, reinstitutes the Sabbath. You know, gives them a little swat on the butt when it comes to their finances. Um, kicks Tobiah out of the temple. He does all this stuff and resets. And that's how the book of Nehemiah concludes. And for us, we need to remember that there are going to be times where we're going to actually feel like we're doing okay. Oh, yeah. Well, remember where we used to? Remember how we used to not have a wall? <laughs> we're good now. Remember how we used to not have a priesthood or not have this or not have that? We kind of get comfortable and then we take it easy. We get a little complacent. That's the beginning of the decline. That comfort is the beginning of the decline. Rather than looking backwards and saying, remember when we didn't have a wall? Let me tell you what happens when you look backwards and then I've got to get these kids up here. When we start to look backwards, we begin to go backwards. Oh, remember when we didn't have a wall? And it's like, you know, we survived then, I guess. If we didn't have a wall now, we'd be all right. Remember when we didn't have this and didn't have that? Instead, be looking forwards. Where are you going? Because wherever you're looking is where you're going to start moving. And I'm all for celebrating the past and what's happened and how we... How, how far we've come. That's, as far as an encouragement, I think that's totally appropriate. But the more you find yourself looking over your shoulder, the more you're going to trip over what's right in front of you. And you're going to start moving backwards. I want us to be future-oriented, focused on what's ahead of us, not what's behind us, moving forward to what we're called to, not necessarily just where we've come from. All right, we good on that? So... I don't know that there's anything better to, to center us right now than, than actually taking communion and, and focusing on the cross because it, 
I mean, this could be a, this whole story could be a picture of my life and your life. I did good for a while and then I screwed up. Then I did good for a while and then I screwed up. I mean, that's like the story of my life at this point. And I know that there's going to be another screw up down the road. But I know that Jesus doesn't hate me and isn't going to smash me because of it. Because he took the penalty that I deserved on the cross. So we have communion this morning. Um, I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. We did bring our oldest class of kids up because we want them to observe communion and kind of see like, all right, what do they do? What do the big people do up in church? So I want to pray over these elements. I want to invite you to come up and partake. Now, the way we do it here at True Vine is you take a piece of bread, you dip it in the cup. Uh, please don't drink from the cup. Please don't do a full, fe- full fisted dip into the cup. We're sharing this. So uh, you're going to take the bread and dip it into the cup. Now, this bread represents Jesus' body that was broken for us when he was crucified. He was beat badly, and his body was broken for us. And this cup, which is, we use grape juice, represents his blood that was spilled for us. Now, this is a tactile, physical reminder of Jesus' love for you. This is much like baptism and the washing of feet. This is a physical thing that you can taste See, touch, smell. You could even hear it if you, if you rip the bread next to your ear. This, is, this can engage all of our senses here. And I think Jesus gives us these kind of things to help make our faith a little more real. So I'm going to pray over these elements. We're going to sing uh, Our Father. Is that correct, Courtney? We're going to sing Our Father. I'm going to ask you to come up when you're ready. I will say, do not rush up here. And if there's some stuff in your life you've got to deal with, hey, we'll have communion again next month. You might need to take a minute and, and sort some of that stuff out. By sort it out, I don't mean get perfect. I mean submit it to Jesus, commit it to Jesus, and uh, be willing to deal with it as he leads you to do that. So, Lord, I thank you for providing this bread for us, which is otherwise just a common, ordinary bread, and you've given it to us for a completely holy and unique purpose. And I the same thing for this juice, Lord, that, uh, that it represents your blood. That's what makes it unique and what makes it holy. And this bread that, bread that represents your body makes it holy, Lord. We set both of these apart for a, uh, a holy purpose to, to obey you in taking communion. And I pray, Lord, that as we do this, as we're obedient to you in taking communion and in worshiping, that you would meet with us, Lord, that we would experience grace and experience your presence in a way that's unique. And I pray that, Jesus, in your name. Amen. As you come up, take, and then you're welcome to stay up front and worship. I would just ask, move to the side so that we can get everybody uh, up here to take communion that would like to. All right, come up whenever you're ready.
whether God loved you uh, this communion is is a reminder of the best thing he ever did to demonstrate his love for you and I know I do this sometimes like Lord if you loved me I would get this or you know could you just show you show you love me by tell by, by saying saying this and he always has to just kind of gently remind me like remember the cross if that doesn't prove it, nothing else will. So this is the proof of Jesus's love for us. And uh, I just want to ask if we could close with this. Could some of you pray in re response your love for him? And then we'll just close with that. So I'll just leave it open. Anyone that wants to go ahead and pray out.
Would you mind standing while I close us in prayer? Lord, we do love you and we uh, want to continue, even after we leave today, to pour our love out on you through through our obedience, through our sacrifice, through the, the way we treat other people, Lord, uh, the way we speak, the way we pray, the way we worship mon- uh, you know, Sunday to, for, to Sunday. Uh, Lord, we, you're worth every bit of love we have for you and then more. Lord, forgive us for our lack of love, but would you, would you get, by your grace, get, give us more love for you, Lord? Uh, would you preveniently go and, and uh, increase our love for you and for other people, Jesus? We thank you for your love for us. And I pray, Lord, that you would encourage us as we go, that we would leave filled with your spirit, filled with encouragement, Lord. And uh, I pray blessing over everybody that, that is here in this room, Lord, and protection as we go. I pray that, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for coming today, guys. Uh, Don't forget, October 4th is the anniversary, so plan to be here for that.